Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, we're in for a long one. A long weekend, that is. And you deserve to spend it on the couch with a glass of something good. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered quickly. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com today. Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan. You're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown. You're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Food Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to. You have the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for a bonus episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Digital Federal Credit Union, better known as DCU. And so far this year, DCU has donated to 119 food banks and pantries with total donations of over $2.1 million. Their commitment to the community doesn't stop at feeding the hungry either. They have passionately supported numerous school programs, hospitals, veterans organizations, and other worthy causes that are doing their part to help individuals and families in need. Veterans organizations provide important and ongoing support to the brave men and women who have served our country and recognizing the special sacrifices that both the veterans and their families have made. DCU's goal is to honor and support our military heroes by continuing to fund new opportunities in the areas of health, employment, and housing through partnerships with local, regional, and national organizations. Giving back is central to what they do, and I know this because I've been working on veteran initiatives with DCU for almost two decades, and I've seen what they can do. 
I also want to put out a reminder for mistresscarry.com. If you're looking for that last-minute gift idea for a music lover on your shopping list, head to mistresscarry.com and check out the online store. Everything from hoodies and t-shirts, pint glasses, coffee mugs, baby onesies, and so much more is available and in stock and ready to ship. Okay, this episode of the podcast is another bonus episode of the podcast. Comedian and podcast host Noel Kassler is out on the road and making a stop in Boston on December 23rd at the Boston City Winery. Tickets are available now and the link to get tickets and all the information on Noel can be found in the show notes of this podcast. Now you may not be aware, but Noel has a long career in the music industry. Actually, being a stand-up kind of came secondary. He's a fascinating guy that has had so much access to so many of the artists that we love. And when I found out that he was coming to town, well, of course I wanted him on the podcast. So why not another bonus episode? In the last week, we've talked to DL from Bad Wolves and Amy Lee from Evanescence. So we've been busy. Noel Kassler is absolutely hilarious. He's such a nice guy. And when it comes to rock music, he and I could talk for hours. I didn't want to stop talking to him. So if you're looking for a fun night out before the crazy invasion of the family, get your tickets to see Noel Kassler on the 23rd at the Boston City Winery. So allow me to introduce you to Noel Kassler. You're on the record now. Don't say anything controversial, Mr. Kassler. (laughs) That's kind of my forte, but all right. (laughs) How are you? good i'm good looking forward to the holidays happy to be here talk about a little rock and roll with you yes so you're gonna be in boston on the 23rd at city winery which is such a cool awesome place to see music comedians it's just a cool place to hang out i agree with you i love city wineries you know when i was a road manager i used to do them all the time with people like steve earl and graham nash and stuff and we they even did a show in new york this week at the town hall that springsteen played at a benefit so they just create a cool vibe you know you know it's run by people that get music get comedy my comedy is a bit of both i don't play while i'm on stage but i talk about you know a lot of the stuff i experienced in 25 years in the biz yeah, and it's and, and for somebody that likes wine, I love to go there. But here's the problem. I, I don't know anything about wine. I'm that I, I'm a wine person's worst nightmare because I love it all. I drink it all. And you could give me a thousand dollar bottle of wine or something you stomped with your own bare feet. And I'm like, this is delicious. Right. No, I hear you. And they take it seriously, obviously. Oh, yeah. Phenophile club. The other cool thing is they'll have like beer on tap in the dressing room. <laughs> you know, like it's like they, they they take care of the artists and the guests, and it's just a good hang. And Boston's, as you know, a great town, so I can't wait to be there. Well, Boston has has a a long history of amazing comedians, and it being a city that loves comedy. So even though you're not from here, as a comedian, like it's got to be a good place for you to go because you're like, oh, all right. This oh, one's yeah. going to be a wild one. Yeah, no, it's it's the big leagues, too, because so many great comedic giants have come out of Boston. Guys that I've worked with, you know, all the great comedy writers and dudes like Conan O'Brien, you know, Bill Sheft, who was Letterman's head writer. It, it's probably the most legendary com- comedy town. I mean, just the schools there, you know, Harvard or something, the National Lampoon, the Harvard Lampoon, all that stuff 
flows from from Boston. So you definitely have to bring your A game when you're rolling into Boston, you know, and Boston's like Philly or New York, you know, people don't play. If you ain't bringing it, they're going to let you know quickly, you know. Well, that's what I was going to say, you know, that I, I talked to guitar player Nita Strauss recently. She plays for Alice Cooper and and she grew up in L.A. And I was like, what is it like growing up a musician in L.A.? And she said, well, every other musician from around the country eventually aspires to come here to make it. So you being from here have to have this high level because you're going to be competing with the best of the best all the time. And I think for a comedian, Boston is kind of that way where we've already got that attitude when we walk in like, oh, you're going to make me laugh tonight? Yeah, okay. Yeah, exactly. Right, exactly. Let me see what you got. You yeah. Know? Yeah, that's how it is, you know, and I like that. You know, if if you love what you're doing and you believe in what you're doing and you're good at it, you you want that kind of challenge, you know, because it's going to bring out the best in you. It's like, look at the sports rivalries. <laughs> you know, when you're playing a Boston team, you're like, you know, it's going to be on and you're not going to you're going to have to earn every laugh you get. And that's what you want. Yeah. The audience gonna, you're not going to be phoning it in in Boston or you're not coming back to Boston. You know, well, that's why, you know, being a woman in rock radio you know, honing my skills and chops in Boston. Cause it's like, if you don't know what you're talking about, if you're not real, they're going to let you know. So it's this, it's the same standard for me too. Absolutely. And I, I I'm a fan of your work. I know who oh, you are. You. I was looking at your recent guest. You mentioned Nita, who's incredible. I've worked with Alice Cooper a ton. He's the coolest guy in the world and a guy who knows talent. You oh know, yeah. If you're playing with Alice Cooper, you know what you're doing. You had Nancy Wilson on. Oh. Isn't she the greatest? Mount Rushmore of of when you look at the shoulders that women like me are standing on when it comes to rock and roll, the Wilson sisters, Joan Jett, Stevie Nick, they're all up there. And I literally, if you listen to the interview, I was like, oh, my God, Nancy Wilson's on the show. Like I was freaking out. Absolutely. You know, and I've worked with all those women you mentioned and and, and, in Nancy's honor, that's Nancy's old telly right there. No way. Really? That's based on her 63 blue telly. Oh, yeah. On all her album covers and stuff. So Nancy's guitar tech was also the guitar tech for Crosby, Stills and Nash, who I toured with for many years. Yeah. And he's really good at making these custom replicas of artists' guitars. And Nancy's main telly was getting sort of too valuable to bring on tour all the time. So he made her an exact replica with all of her scratches and belt buckle rash and everything, gave it to her. She played a concert with it, came back off stage, said, I love this guitar, but can you make me another one in blue? And then I bought that one. She gave it back to him. And I was like, dude, that's mine. And I you know, I've talked to Nancy about it. And, uh, you know, I've worked with Nan and uh, Ann and Nancy Wilson. I did the Neil Young's Bridge School benefit with yeah, with, with Stephen Stills and Crosby Stills and Nash. There's always so many great performances that come out of that thing because everybody's right. so stripped. I mean, if you can get Metallica to sit down and play acoustic for you, you know, it's going to be iconic. Absolutely. And he'll have a, he had a back then he would have a barbecue at his ranch the night before. So I got to go to this barbecue and I'm sitting there with like, you know, Ann Wilson, like, how did I get here? And dude, you mentioned women in rock. Nancy Wilson, you know, obviously is a legend. She doesn't get the props she really deserves. She was the female guitar player that made male guitar players in the seventies and early eighties when it was completely testosterone field 
And and she started kicking ass. Steven Stills would say, dude, she's one of the best guitar players in the world, period. She she's gave got- Eddie Van Halen his first acoustic because he didn't right. have one. She got them to open the store up in the middle of the night so she could go and get him an acoustic and 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 give it to him. And then I guess he called her like drunk in the middle of the night and played her this song that he wrote for her on it. And he never recorded it and never played it again. And and yeah, she told me the story and it's like lost in the ether. And that's part of the reason why on her solo record she came out with this year that she has that tribute song for Edward. But she told me this song. She was like half awake and he was drunk and just playing and like, yeah. I told her that if the Wilson sisters, because I guess at one point the Van Halen brothers and the Wilson sisters were like in a room and there was like some flirting going on, but Eddie was with Valerie. And I was like, you do know that that's the rock and roll equivalent of crossing the streams in Ghostbusters. If the Van Halen brothers and the Wilson sisters ended up getting together, like the whole world would have exploded. Absolutely. Oh my God. That's an amazing story. And when they do Zeppelin too, you know, you've heard, it's like, I literally walked up to the back of shoreline. They were on stage and I was like, oh no, that's Robert Plant on stage. <laughs> like Zeppelin snuck in the back door and didn't tell us, you know, not to mention it's two women. And I love that because women rock, you know, that I hated, I'm 50 years old. So I grew up at the height of, you know, girls don't play guitar. Now you go on Instagram. I see girls shredding all day long that are better than I'll ever be. And they're 15 years old. It's not that they're not capable. It's just that they were never encouraged to try. Right. Exactly. And, and that's, and we all lose, right? Cause a kick-ass musician is a kick-ass musician, no matter what, Yeah. the man, woman, whatever, let's, let's rock out, you know? She told me the story about the Kennedy Center Honors performance with Led Zeppelin. She was like, no pressure. It's just the president and Led Zeppelin. And she told me the story that they did, that they did rehearsals and that her hands were really cold and she screwed up the solo to Stairway to Heaven in rehearsals. And her guitar player was like, we'll shadow you. Don't worry. It'll be fine. And she was like, I can handle it. I, I don't need you to shadow me. And like, obviously that, that video has gone around the internet 10,000 times. Like, you know, I mean, they made Robert Plant cry. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Absolutely. I was there actually. I started my Shut career. Up! I started my career on the Kennedy center honors in 1993 and did them forever. And actually Shane Fontaine also played a solo who was in the house band who played with CSN and stuff and sting and Springsteen. He, he played on that set too. And literally, yeah, you know, it was like, you could see Robert plant feeling the power of his music. You know, it was almost like it finally dawned on him what he had created, you know? Yeah. And God, what a performance, you know? Okay, and you... Better... Sorry. Ooh, go ahead. No, I was just saying, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think that's a highlight in in musical sort of like performance live TV history, you know. For anybody that doesn't know who you are, do you mind going back because you're a comedian, yeah. but you are so ingrained in rock and roll. I, I want people to understand why. So are you originally from New York? No, I'm from Maryland originally. I moved to New York when I was like 14. You know, but I grew up in the D.C. area. I moved to New York for the high school years, moved back to D.C. My my next door neighbor was a guy named Skeeter who was in a band called Scream. The drummer's name was Dave Grohl. So I was there for all that. Yeah. I've worked with Dave. The Never heard company. of that guy. Who are you talking about? Exactly. So I basically I broke into rock and roll at a young age. You know, when I was 18, I snuck into Jackson Brown's dressing room at Radio City Music Hall and like 
you know, I, I sort of fell in love with the smell of the grease paint, as they say in show business. I saw the roadies and the cases and I saw there was this whole world behind the scenes. And I was like, I need to get there, man. Like I need to get in this world. And I was lucky enough to sort of will my way into it. And I toured with the Stones and Bruce Springsteen and Crosby, Stills and Nash. But sort of the main part of my career was for 20 years, I did live television and I did the Super Bowl halftime show, the VMAs, you know, forever for like 20 years, the Grammys, all this stuff. So I got to work with all my heroes. Like I got to meet Lemmy. You know what I mean? Like I did a gig with him in Vegas and the Foo Fighters at the VMAs where we all played in a like hotel room with Mastodon and, you know, like in Serge Turkini, however you say his name, Turkanian or what I always Serge get his name. Tankian. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. all these, you know, so I got paid to rock out essentially, you know, and I got to see the best side of the business, which is like how many other people go into a rock show, you know, you think of the people on stage, but there's this whole crew and there's management and there's fans and there's people like you, right? In every city that love the music, but are professionals and in interviewing. And there's a publicity press side of it all. And I was a road manager, so I got to be a part of that. You know, I sat in studios like yours with legends and and then I sort of went into comedy a bunch of years ago because it was time for me to do that. You know, a lot of my experiences in live TV were relevant to other things that were happening in the world. Well, did, were, did you grow up making people laugh? Because it, it feels yeah. like it's something that that is innate, like you either can do it or you can't. Right. Absolutely. You know, I, my, my parents named me after Jimi Hendrix's bass player. Right. So I lived in a tent on Todd Rundgren's farm for part of my childhood. Like I'd go live with my dad in the summer. So and the rest of the time I was with a single mom outside of D.C. in a rough neighborhood, you know, where I was the only kid who looked like me, you know, so I had to have a sense of humor. Or I was going to get my ass kicked. You know, <laughs> it, literally, it was like, I'm going to make fun of you so you don't beat me up, which is goes beyond, you know, rationale but people would be like oh that guy Noel will just never stop making fun of me if i mess with him so and i like to bring people joy and i i, I did go to drama school and did a lot of the you know comedic plays i used to do stuff with ucb which is amy poehler and upright citizens brigade so i i had a background in theater and making people laugh there's a ton of comedy in music you yeah. know people oh. don't realize how funny it is being on a tour bus you know it's with a right i attribute it to the same experience. So I was a roadie before I was a DJ because um, I had to find a way. I went to broadcasting school, but then I had all the bills and didn't have the job. So I had to find a way. And so I, I attribute it the same as the camaraderie that military guys get when they're training together, except it's not dangerous because I've been an embedded reporter in Iraq and Afghanistan and the downtime those guys bust balls in a way that roadies and bands do. And it's the funnier stuff happens off the stage. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Absolutely. And I, I would say the same thing. I was like, it, it's like being in the army, except with per diem, you know, yeah. and no one's shooting at and you. And no one's yeah. shooting at you. Yeah. But it's that same type of like you're on a ship, you know, you're stuck with these guys all day long in a hotel tour bus backstage. And some of the most hilarious things in my life come up in those things, because, you know, best, the best comedy comes out of love. Like you really like the people, you know, you're busting shops, but oh, it's yeah. really you're trying to get each other through, you know, a tough situation. Embrace the suck. That's what the military says. You got to embrace exactly. the suck. Exactly. You know, and, and obviously touring 
you know, is, is nothing compared to being deployed, but it's not also as fun as people think it is. You know, they see the two hours you're on stage. They don't see that six hour drive after you left that town. They don't see the roadies sleeping on a bus and loading in at nine in the morning. The cold <laughs> cut trays, the concrete dressing rooms, the, you know, the, the, the things getting lost, doing your laundry in a different oh, place, okay. sleeping on shitty beds. It's definitely not luxurious. Exactly. No, exactly. And at every level, like I've done really high end, you know, first class tours and I've done, you know, me and another guy on a bus, you know, playing clubs. And it's it it's almost the same at every level. Like the grind is the grind. Yeah, the hotels can get a little nicer, but it's you're still away from home. You know, a friend of mine said, look, they don't pay me to pay play music. They pay me to like miss my daughter's school play. Yeah. The music they want to do for free. Exactly. He's like, I would pay, you know, I'd play for free, you know, and I'm so glad you said that because that's really a lot of what my comedy is about. It's trying to share that world with people on stage. Like, here's what happened. I worked with Prince, you know, I did halftime shows with Prince, that Rock and Roll Hall of Fame where he played that sick guitar (sighs) solo. So, yeah, those are the the solo for uh, and my guitar gently weeps. Right. Where. And that was that was a fuck you to what Rolling Stone because they came out with a list of the greatest guitar players and he wasn't on it and he was like hold my beer please, dude exactly and it was like just to everybody else in the room just if there's any question who's the greatest because you it, you know the house band you had like Tom Petty there you know you had all these folks and Prince was like I'll sit out you know like every like, he was also a gentleman about it like yeah. he didn't steal the show he let a couple other guitar players take a pass at that Eric Clapton solo. And they played 12, 16 bars, right? And he was just standing on the side. And then he walks out with that telly and just, I mean, destroys it. It's on a different level. And And he knew he was doing it because if you watch the video, that smirk on his face, he's like, I know what you're thinking right now, motherfuckers. Exactly. And it's just like, I loved that moment so much because I saw Purple Rain in the movie theater. And if you remember back then, music in a way was almost segregated in terms of like rock guys rock you know and 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 guys that are from like pop or soul or whatever like they don't play well you know and when you saw him come out with let's go crazy and play that solo on film you're like this dude rocks which opened up a lot of minds right so it reminded me of that you know it reminded me of like don't pigeonhole what musicians are you know because you never know who's going to kick your ass and the funny thing about prince is he could do that on a synthesizer (laughs) you know like he could that on a bass too. He just happened to use the guitar in that moment, but easily the greatest guitar solo ever. And I'll share a story with you real quick about Prince. I did the Super Bowl with Prince too in the, in Miami when it was raining sideways. Oh yeah. And he played Purple Rain and everything. And we had taped that. We do like a run through on the Thursday night before the Sunday football game, right? So we taped it down there in Miami and he did the whole thing and it was sunny and we had the stage and everything. And then it rained and it rained sideways. And his management basically told the producers, I work in the talent team, like, hey, he's not going to play out there in the rain. Just run the tape from the other night. And we're like, we can't run the tape like it's raining sideways and the tape is sunny. (laughs) Like, it's not, you know, he has to go out and play. And he's like, well, what's going to happen? Is he going to get electrocuted? And it was like, no, you're going to go out there. You're going to be safe. You're going to pop up out of that thing. You're going to take your crazy guitar and you're going to rock out. And he basically said, "Okay, can you make it rain harder? 
<laughs> and just went out there and destroyed. And I was with the marching band. If you ever watched the tape, that was my like assignment was this huge marching band. And they all had these neon things, all of them like this fancy lighting. And it all started short, short, short circuiting. Right. And the guys are like tripping on the field and like <laughs> falling over. It was so insane, but so epic. And so Prince, you know, yeah. he, he is the true definition of eccentric because if he were poor and not and, and not famous, he'd be batshit crazy. But because he's Prince, it's eccentric. Absolutely. You know, and because his level of excellence was so high, yeah. like my marching band, he called up the musical director of that band two weeks before and was like, I'm going to write your charts. Like, I'm going to make sure that what you're playing dovetails perfectly with how I want this arrangement to go for this song. Most guys wouldn't do that. They'd no. be like, oh, there's a bunch of horns on the field. You're not going to hear them anyway. <laughs> it's not like we had mics on. Or the he would get somebody to do it for him. Exactly. He wrote the chart himself two weeks before and worked with the guy at like Florida State or FMU, you know, so, man, you don't you don't replace a guy like that, like Eddie Van Halen. You're not getting another Eddie Van Halen in this lifetime. You know, it's like Mozart or something, you know, somebody told me a story and I'm, I'm pissed. I can't remember who it was, but I'll think of it. Um, I think it might have been Dan Murphy from All Good Things. I can't remember. But anyway, they told me a story about Prince's house and that it was on the water. And that he would go out to his car to listen to demos that he had recorded in his studio, which a lot of musicians do. They record in this million-dollar studio with these amazing speakers, and then they go out to the car to listen to the tracks. And he told me a story that Prince would, would burn the track on, like, a CD or whatever, and he would take it out to the car. And then if he didn't like it or was upset about it or whatever, he would huck the disc into the lake. Oh my God. So at the bottom of whatever that lake is where Paisley Park is, there's a pile of Prince recordings sitting at the bottom of the lake that someone needs to get a fucking scuba suit on and go and try and find. Oh my God. That's yeah. insane. I don't and know it if it's true, but somebody on the podcast and I'm, I'm racking my brain trying to figure out who it was told me that story. It sounds like it would be true. I knew a couple guy. I knew a guy who was Prince's guitar tech for a lot of years and a couple other audio guys. And they told me like, they're like, look, bro, you've heard maybe 10% of the music he's recorded. They're like, he records all night long. <laughs> like that dude is always making music. And that sounds just like him, that he would just throw it out if it didn't meet his standards. Can you imagine? Somebody definitely needs to like excavate that lake drag the lake you seriously know? and what's what's insane about a guy like that and i've talked about this on the air and on the podcast before i'm a bit of a doomsday prepper right always have been um my husband's a marine you know i grew up in like a military first responder family so i've had the zombie closet in the house everyone's told me i was crazy then covid hits all of a sudden not so crazy anymore and I cannot believe that a guy like Prince wouldn't have a will. That people that are at this caliber leaving this legacy with millions and millions of dollars and that vault you're talking about of unreleased music and you don't have a fucking will. What? I know. It's insane. 
you know, and in that vault, it wasn't just him. Like he recorded 18 hours with Miles Davis. That's supposed to be brilliant that they recorded together in the 80s. And Prince wanted to put it out. And Miles' estate was like, no. So it just sat there in his vault. So who owns those masters? I mean, obviously, his relatives are fighting over. But yeah, it also, you know, on a sadder note, when they let him check himself out of that hotel in Detroit, you know, because he he OD'd, went to the or the hospital rather, and they let him sign himself out against yeah. AMA and fly home and was like, I'll go to rehab on Tuesday. And it was just like, who did that? Who was asleep at the wheel as a management that you didn't say, no, bro, you're staying here. Thank God you're still alive. You're going right from here to rehab and well, forget about it. the same thing happened to Kurt Cobain that he OD'd and they were able to bring him back. It's like, on one hand, it's like, what could you have done? And on the other hand, there's a certain reality that if someone's on a track sometimes it's really hard to pull them off of that track no matter how hard you try absolutely and you can't get somebody else sober you know but you also can't exploit them for money when they're clearly sick and suffering i remember a friend of mine was playing drums for an artist i won't mention but they were on a tour with amy winehouse and i was on tour at the same time in europe and the guy sent me a little video. He goes, look, this is Amy Winehouse at her gig last night. And she came out and sat, sang a song and then like sat down drunk on the stage. And I remember texting him back like, dude, she's going to be dead in two weeks. Like who has her on the road right now? Like what kind of manager cares more about a commission than like having that woman get the help she needs? She's a huge talent. She doesn't need to do a gig right now. You're going to and- make more money off of her. She's fucking alive. And sadly, you know, she died. And it was the same thing with Kurt. Like they should have, you know, I know some people, I know his management and stuff then. And and a lot of those guys went on to work with, you know, Foo Fighters and stuff. And yeah, you know, you can't, you can't put somebody out there who's not ready to be out there. Metallica is a great example of that. They had guys that were like, no, dude, we're going to clear this up. You know, Uh, Motley Crue, Don Don McGee, I guess, right? It was Doc McGee. Doc McGee, yeah. He goes, I'm not letting you guys go to Europe because some of you guys are going to come home in a body bag. You need to get sober and look at Nikki Six now. The best writer on recovery is Nikki Six. Unreal. Right. You know, so. And James Hetfield, you know, isn't an easy guy to sit down and tell what to do. Yeah, no shit. (laughs) I was looking in your page. I saw that you were at the Soundgarden. It's Guns N' Roses. But I saw Metallica open for Guns N' Roses at the show right before they went up to Toronto and Hetfield got blown up by the Well, That was the big co-headlining tour. And they would swap. And five days after the Montreal riot where James Hetfield got burned, they played the old Foxborough Stadium. It was Metallica, Guns N' Roses, and Faith No More. And, and everybody, somebody threw a rose. I had gotten like 10th row on the floor for that show. And somebody threw a rose at Axel and it hit him and he was at the piano and he stormed off the stage. And for 10 minutes, the stadium was like, is this going to be Montreal all over again? And it just so happened. I can't remember his name, but there was a dude from the old line of the Pats next to me in the row and it was like me and my teenage sister and this mountain of a man just looks down and goes if the shit hits the fan just stick with me because like you know he knows the in and outs of the stadium because he plays there and I was like no problem dude like it was scary and obviously Guns N' Roses came back out and whatever but James had his arm in a cast and his roadie was playing guitar at that gig because his arm was all burned up from the pyro 
That is just insane. Yeah. So I guess I was there like a week right before they went up to Toronto and it was RFK Stadium in in Washington, D.C. And uh, I think it was called RFK at the time. And uh, I remember Faith No More played, Metallica played, and then there was like an hour and a half where Guns N' Roses didn't come out. And they made an announcement like, if you took the subway here, you have to leave now because the last subway train is at 1130. And they still hadn't come out. And then people got pissed and started throwing beer cups and stuff. And it was raining down on the stage. And then Axel finally came out and he goes, you guys know what happened in St. Louis? You want that to happen here? Okay, stop throwing stuff, you know? And then they played for like two and a half hours and it was insane. Everybody took cabs home. Right. Yeah. Same thing happened when, I mean, I'm so glad that Guns N' Roses now, like that shit's not happening because the, when, when, um, Chinese Democracy came out and they came through, not the reunion tour, but with Buckethead and whatever. Me and Corey Taylor from Stone Sour and Slipknot, we went to the Boston Garden show together. And me and Corey are sitting in like the 15th row on the floor for like three and a half fucking hours waiting for Guns N' Roses to come out. And there's this really funny video because Corey went on like this storyteller's acoustic tour and somebody got cell phone video of it. He told the story of the night that he was waiting for Axel to come out and did this whole thing. And I was like, wait, I was there. That was me. Like, it's you can find the video. It's pretty fucking hilarious. That's awesome, man. I got some great slash stories. I only I did a VMAs with Axel once and he had Buckethead. He had Izzy Stradlin in that band and Tommy from the replacements. I forget Tommy's last name, but um, the bass player, Tommy Stinson. Yeah. And uh, and they Axel kicked ass in the rehearsal. And then when we did the live show, he had lost his voice and the performance was horrible. I wish I could. One of my best friends is a guy named Bubbles, Mike Smith, who has a group called the Trailer Park Boys, which yep. is a big, yeah, big Canadian, like where, where we go way back. And he always sends Axel my tweets <laughs> and Axel will like give a, a you know, a, a love heart or something and he'll send it back to me. But I've never met him. I think he retweeted me once. But those guys were legends. I mean, we were lucky, you know. Soundgarden was young then. I got to work with Soundgarden a lot. Like, I mean, you stuff. talk about guys that would be dead if they didn't stop partying. Slash is a perfect example. The guy's got a pacemaker now, and he's still killing it. Does he have a pacemaker? Yeah, he has for years, yeah. Good for him. Yeah, I, you know, I don't party myself. I've been in that, you know, on the other side of that thing for a lot of years, and it's good to see guys who went down the road hard like that get sober because then they just come back like the last time i i I did the guns and roses induction in cleveland for the rock and roll hall of fame i did all you know that as i said for like 20 years and he was on fire that night like they played the hard rock cafe like the night before just for fun and it completely you know rocked so it's wonderful because slash is a you know is a legend i'm playing iridium next month which is les paul's club in new york city yeah. i only i basically play music clubs because of obviously what we're talking about yeah uh i remember i was there for the opening night and it was les paul and slash and this is when slash still partied this was in the 90s late 90s and les paul calls slash out to stage and like has him sit down on this chair next to him and slash has the cigarette hanging out of his mouth and the top hat you know who you want him to be but the audience, because it was like the opening night where all these like rich New York City society ladies, like 70 year old ladies. And the lady goes, oh, my God, he's smoking. And 
Slash leans over her table, takes a puff on his cigarette, and then drops it in her martini glass. Oh, like, oh my God, dude. It was like awesome. You know, it was like how you wanted Slash to be messed up, but like funny, you know. I, I really truly believe that when it comes to addiction, that it, that there is a genetic component to it because I've been working in the rock industry for 30 years and I am very well aware that I am just not a person that has that addictive, I've been around every drug. I, I, I've never had an issue with it. And I re- that convinces me that there is not just an environmental component, but that there is a genetic predisposition because there's, there's so much of it. It runs rampant in the industry that we work in. And to be impervious to it to a certain extent, there's no reason why I shouldn't have gotten wrapped up. I mean, you talk about like the mid to late 90s. That's when I hit the air in the middle of that, you know, dick measuring new metal. I mean, it, it, we were partying all the time out everywhere. I was in the middle of it all loving every minute. But so many people I know have had to like hit rock bottom and come back up. And I give them all the credit in the world because it's not easy. I just don't understand why. If it's not genetic, why someone like me wouldn't have gotten wrapped up in it, too. Right. No, it is. You know, they say in the program, like it's an allergy, like some people just have a predisposition to that, like I do, you know. And what happens is you can sort of hide it when you're younger because everyone else around you is partying and stuff. And then you hit your early 30s or whatever it takes. And like other people are kind of still having normal lives. And and you're not. And for somebody like me who was in it, I came to a crossroads roads where I was like, I'm going to die if I, I I can't party, you know, like I can't do this job and party, too, because the combination is deadly. Yeah. And I'll tell you a story about that, like that VMAs I mentioned, we were out in Vegas and we did this whole like remote in this hotel room and we had Lemmy, you know, who's a hard drinker, hard partier, but not an addict. Dave Grohl, who parties, but not an addict. Right. Cobain is an addict. And we finished the gig and we went down to this big after party around the pool at the Palms Hotel. And Dave Grohl threw CeeLo in the pool. And then like he jumped How in do the you pool. throw CeeLo in a pool. You got to be a fucking strong dude. Exactly. He's well, not a and small CeeLo- man. I know Dave's actually kind of, he's a drummer, you know, he's got the endurance. So he just tosses him in the pool, jumps in after him. Me and the tour manager are fishing him out of the pool. We get out of the pool and Dave goes, Noel, you've been working hard all night. Drink this. And he hands me a bottle of, of Jack Daniels. Right. And I'd been about two years out of drinking at this point, you know, it's just around 2007, 2008. And uh, I go, I'm not taking that. And he goes, drink this. And he goes, I'm not, I'm like, I'm not drinking it. Drink this. And I said, dude, I'm not drinking it like and I mentioned a friend of ours in D.C. that he knows got sober. He goes, I don't drink like such and such doesn't drink. And he sees me. He gets it. He takes the bottle, hands it to another guy, goes drink this. And I realized like that was the most rock and roll moment I had because I was being true to myself and I was realizing my limitations, which allow you to keep partying, right? Like Alice Cooper is a great example. You wouldn't have Alice Cooper anymore if he didn't get sober. Totally. Right. So you got to, you got to know your limitations and it'll only allow you to keep on rocking and and living life, you know? Well, it used to be something that nobody wanted to admit that they were sober. They didn't want to talk about it. They would, they would make it look like they were drinking even though they weren't. And now, thankfully, society has accepted exactly what we're talking about. And now someone, 
you know, there's so many artists out there that that talk about their sobriety. I mean, you talk about Nikki Six. He's writing books about it. He's talking about it and going, you know what? My life is still amazing. I just don't party anymore. Right. Exactly. But my and life you, doesn't yeah. suck because I'm yeah. sober. Right. It gets better in many ways if you do have a problem, because if you do have a problem, it's going to be holding you back. You know, you're right. sort of like you got the brakes on through your whole life because you're in your head worrying about or you're hungover and all this crap, you know, and as we know now, it's a death sentence. It's not even like it was, you know, back in the days because of fentanyl and all these other drugs like, you know, you, you're, you're playing Russian roulette anytime you you do something. So the more we can take away the stigma and make it just part of, you know, part of the party is getting sober too, for some people, you know, you're a lot like I am that, that we have been so fortunate and it's such an amazing experience to kind of have this front row seat to like, I'm not a musician. I'm not a songwriter. I talk about it on my show all the time. I'm fascinated by the craft. I respect the craft. I love it so much, but it's just not an ability that I have. But I am fortunate enough to have found a place in this ecosystem that we're talking about and having a front row seat to some of these legendary artists, those moments, those backstage times, the ball busting times with the roadies, like it, it is your, there are sometimes we're just like, nobody would fucking believe this. Dude, nobody would believe this. Absolutely. You know, I remember doing a rock hall where Steely Dan was getting inducted. Dave Grohl and Taylor were there to induct Queen. Right. And there was a couple other acts. And Paul Schaefer from Letterman's show was the musical director. And he comes up to me and he goes, Noel, I need another guitar player for this Steely Dan tribute. You're working with Queen tonight. Go ask Brian May if he'll play on Ricky. Don't lose that number. Right. So I run over to Brian's table. It was in a ballroom <laughs> back then. And I'm like, Brian, Wait, hold on. don't say I'm running over to Brian's table. You're running over to Dockton Brian fucking May's table right. from Queen. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That, that's how it gets too. Yeah. You're like, I can't believe this, you know? So I run over to Brian's table. I'm like, Hey, Brian, Paul wants you to get up and play on Ricky. Don't lose that number. You know, he goes, no, tell him thanks, but no thanks. And I run back and I'm like, he said, thanks, but no thanks. And he goes, just tell him to do it. It's a C scale. And I run back over. I'm like, Brian, it's a C pentatonic blues scale. And he goes, dude, you don't get it. I play queen songs that I make up myself. I'm not getting on stage with Steely freaking Dan you know, and playing like all those jazz chords and shit, you know? And it was so funny because he was reacting how I would have, you know, I'd be like, I'm not playing Steely Dan. That's complicated as shit. And it, you know, and, and Brian May is a God. I grew up learning how to play his solos. He's, he's not just a God. He's a fucking rocket scientist. He's not a dumb but man. <laughs> Exactly. He builds his freaking guitars. You know, yeah. he has the best tone in the business. Like, and it was so funny to see that humility, you know, to see this rock God get like, hell no, I don't, you know what I mean? Like everybody, cause there's, everyone's at a different level. And, and that's the kind of stuff you only see behind the scenes. And I'd say to any of your listeners that were younger, maybe, and wanted to get into the business, my advice would be if you're so lucky to get a job in it, do whatever that first job is the best you can do. 100%. You know? One of the first things I did was like getting sandwiches for people at SIR, which is where you rehearse in New York City for big gigs. And I'd be running out in the rain on my bicycle and coming back and the lunch would always be perfect, you know, and never late. 
And they'd be like, dude, you do this so well. What's the deal? It's like, this is my role in it, right? This is my role in the rock and roll that I love so much at this moment. It's getting that guy that coffee, making sure he's got his cigarettes or whatever he needs before he goes on stage. Do whatever you have to do at that moment, the best you can do it, and people will notice. Do you know what I'm saying? A hundred percent. Right. Because I see these young people and they're like, I want to be the tour manager. And it's like, bro, you've you've been on the tour for two days. (laughs) Like, you know, like people always, I find this younger generation kind of gets antsy about like moving your way up. And it's like, you got to earn it, especially in that business, because you can't really, you can't. You have to like, it's the kind of job where you can only get good at it by experience. You can't really teach people how to react in this situations. You have to put them in that situation. And then you realize, oh, this is why you do it this way. You know what I mean? Thousands of people want those jobs. Right. But there's only four that are willing to do the work to get them. So if you want the job, you got to be one of the four. Like you've got to work your way and sweep the floors. And every successful person that you hear in an interview, they talk about starting at the bottom, their work ethic, being um, reliable, punctual, taking pride in your work. I mean, these are universal things, but especially in this business, because like we talked about before, Everybody thinks it's so glamorous, but backstage, when you're working those 20-hour days, like for me, when I was driving semis and show, I was the the one that showed up to build the stage at 6 o'clock in the morning so that you guys could load in at noon and you're covered in vomit from the dude that puked on the stage the night before. It's like, who the fuck wants that job? Exactly. And you got to do that job to get the better job. Yeah. Right? to pay your dues. I remember I was doing a gig. I used to do the the tennis US Open every year. And we'd have like opening acts and performers and stuff. And we had um, Justin Bieber, right on the gig. And he had all these suitcases in this suite that we had him in, right. And a kid who was sort of working on our production team, who'd also gotten to do the Super Bowl and very cool gigs. You know, the main boss, the town executive was like, no, grab a couple guys, go to Justin Bieber's suite. He's got a bunch of luggage needs to go down to the van. I'm like, I'm on it. Right. The other PA shows up at the door and goes, I'm not carrying luggage, bro. And he walks out of there and the boss comes up to me and goes, what does that guy think this gig is? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. what does he think he's above doing? You know, and that, obviously that guy didn't work again. You know, it's like you got to do what's asked of you as long as it's you know, within bounds, you know, <laughs> like, but uh that's just invaluable advice. You know, that's how you'll earn. You got to earn the respect and then you'll get the career. And people notice, you don't have to tell them that you're working hard. They just notice. I mean, I worked at WAF for seven years before I got on the air. The first three, I worked for free. And then the, the, the next four, I made minimum wage, which at the time wasn't even four bucks an hour. Right. And I would always be like, what can I do? Where do you need me? What's up? And, and that's what sets you up when when there is that time where they need someone and they look around and you're standing there and you just teed yourself up for the opportunity. But if you're not the one standing there ready to go, you're not going to get the nod. hundred percent. That's exactly how it works. You know, and I worked for free a ton 
if there was a gig in town and they needed help, I'd throw my name, you know, if you need any extra help, I'll come down, work for free, work the gig. And I can't tell you how many big events I did at the garden that were like that big benefit concerts and stuff. When I got hired to work Springsteen's reunion tour at the garden, the production office would open at like 9 p.m. or 9 a.m. rather for the day, right? The production manager and those people, I would be standing outside that door at 8.30 every day for the 10 shows we came Fully caffeinated and ready to go. Black shirt, pressed, you know, a t-shirt looking good, you know, like ready to work, show up like you're ready to work. And I remember as my career ascended, Sometimes you can get sloppy with that stuff, you know, and I was a tour manager at one point. I was in Canada on a solo tour with Jackson Brown and we were walking into like a hockey arena and, you know, I'd been a rough couple of days, you know, and my shirt's kind of hanging out. My hair is a little messed up. And the production manager was like, bro, you're representing all of us. Walk in here like you're ready for business. And that stuck with me, you know, because I was like, he's right. And now now I play theaters and clubs, you know, because I earned it. But I. I approach it the same way, you yeah. know, and, and let me just say kudos to you because, you know, women had it a lot tougher. You know, there's a lot of misogyny in this business. And- Especially, yeah, in rock and roll specifically. And, and when I was coming up in it in the 90s, you know, it, it comes up every now and again when I interview female artists that it was like, we need one chick. And right. when we got one, we're good. So we need one female DJ and... You know, we put her on the air at night and, you know, all the sexy stuff. And it's like, you know, there's a certain amount of that that I say, well, being a woman helped me because there was that one spot and I was able to get it. But it also, you know, once you get it, it slams the door. And and not only that, but you've got to show twice as much that you can hack it. And 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 I can't remember the number of times I would get into like debates over music, like with listeners and stuff, because they thought I just got my job because I had lipstick on or whatever and, and didn't think that I could have an intelligent conversation about guitar tone or, you know, album sequencing or like any of that stuff. And then there was always the assumption that I was fucking the bands. Right. Always. A hundred percent. No, I know. Always. And I, and I made it, vocally known in the industry very early on. Um, I mean, early in my career, it was like, well, these are the only people that are around. So I had a couple boyfriends that were in bands, but then I quickly realized like, this is going to hurt my career. And I would tell people, I don't date bands. It's a rule. I'm not going to break it. I don't care how successful you are, how many Grammys you have, because there were offers. But I was like, I don't date guys in bands because I want to have a career. And that would not be the same for guys. A guy could date as many female musicians as he wanted and it wouldn't affect his career. But a woman dating band guys, it like puts an expiration date on your career for sure. hundred percent. Unless 100%. you get married and have a successful life together, which, you know, yeah. this business, good luck with that. I know, exactly. <laughs> it happens every once in a while, but you're absolutely right. You know, and kudos to you because you, you had to be a trailblazer on that path and it's still not over. You know, but it's it's come. So, you know, I see Pearl Jam as 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 women, you know, tour managers. I love to see more women on the tech side of thing, which I see a lot. I see more and more women front of house mixing LDs. Bring it on, man. Bring it on. I used to back my semi into the loading dock and climb out of the truck and all the all the guys would be sitting there waiting to unload the gear and they'd be like, well, where's the driver? 
And I'd, and I'd be like, what do you mean? They would think I was the wife because so many of those long haul tractor trailer drivers would have their wives with them to keep them company. And I was like, yeah, I'm the driver. And they're like, you just, you just back that semi up blind into this dock. And I was like, yeah, unload the fucking truck. Wow. We got shit to do. Like, yes, I'm the driver. Go look in there. There's nobody else in there. Unload the truck. We got shit to do. Like, it, it, sometimes you have to be a bitch about it because it's like, yes, I know. I have tits and I can drive. It's a miracle. Right. Well, that is badass. Hats off to you. You know, I couldn't drive a freaking truck. <laughs> I couldn't back up a pickup truck. Like, that is badass. I won a lot of money because people didn't think that I was the driver. Be like, oh, yeah, go hook up the trailer. Like, 50 bucks? Okay. And all my roadie buddies, which because I was like the only girl on the crew a lot of the time. And they just sit there and shake their heads like, she's going to take another 50 bucks off this asshole. Like, it's going to happen. <laughs> awesome. With, um, with the way technology is, doing what you do, having a podcast now like I have too, it gives you this, this amazing platform to be as, as raw as you want. You can talk about whatever you want. It gives you this amazing freedom. But in this day and age, doing what you do, it's got to be harder than ever. And you don't give a fuck be- because of the stuff you talk about with Trump and all of that stuff. But just as a society, with people trying to cancel Chappelle, like it's got to be just this giant pain in the ass for a stand-up right now because you're just like, here we go. Yeah, no, it is. You know, it- it's dangerous. And because uh, everyone's gunning for you. And myself, yeah, yeah like I am political. And I'm- it's not like I'm like, oh, you're a dumbass if you support Trump. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying I worked with a guy. He's a con man. <laughs> you know, I don't care if you're a Republican, Democrat. I'm telling you, this guy's in it for himself. You know, and, and I, I say that comedically. I'm not saying, you know, in my act, it's meant to be funny. I'm not right. sitting there like what I want to do is bring people back together. You know, that's what comedy should do. Like we all need to get back in the room, right, left, you know, conservative, liberal, whatever. Like laugh together, cheer for a band together. Right. Because that's how it used to be. Right. We'd all come together and rock and we wouldn't be like, who'd you vote for, bro? Like, it doesn't matter. You're a goddamn American. You know, you mentioned firemen. Firemen are heroes. And I know what you've done for, you know, the guys they lost in Worcester and all these, you know, Boston. I did the the Hatch Band Shell Boston Pops show every year, the 4th oh, of July. Oh, yeah. I did that forever for CBS. And you'd get to work, you know, with with Boston FD and like state trooper, you know, all the national guard guys out there. Exactly. Such a great history of that. But my point is those guys are there to protect everybody, right? They're not like, Oh, I'm not going to go put your fire out because you voted for such and such, you know? And with the way I think social media has a lot to do with it, you know, because it's easy to get on like Twitter and like, you know, spout off on somebody where you wouldn't say it to them in person in a deli. And it's also easier to get along with people, right? Like when you hold the door for somebody and they're like, hey, thanks, have a nice day. Like that sort of like how we're nice to each other, it makes you feel good, right? Because it's love. Like we're all here to kind of get through life. We're all struggling, right? And none of us are getting out of it alive. Like I don't care how much money you have or how many Grammys you have or whatever. At the end of the day, we all look stupid sitting on the toilet and we're all going to die. Exactly. Exactly. Well said, you know, and that's literally my show is kind of like a play. It goes for 70 minutes and like the first 35 minutes are all these kind of jokes about this stuff. And then I talk about these music stories and the overarching point is about 
precisely that, how at the best moments we all come together. You know, it's like the Super Bowl. Everybody loves the Super Bowl. We were doing that so we can all be thrilled together and cheer and stuff. And even if your team loses, I don't, your 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 town's team doesn't lose as much. They as do the, every now and again, and we're not going to talk about those because they sting still. I, I, and I was at all of them, dude. I was out there in Phoenix. Tom Petty played the halftime show and stuff. Were you I at was, the Jacksonville one with, with Paul McCartney? Yes, yeah. So I was there in the stands, right? And it's like... As a as a born and raised Boston sports fan and the soundtrack of my childhood being the Beatles and getting a ticket to that game and being there going, I can't believe I'm watching my team win the Super Bowl and I just watched a fucking Beatle. Like, am I going to get struck by lightning when I walk out of here? Because this is as good as it gets, right? Absolutely. That's awesome. And, you know, that's a great example, though, right? The Beatles. The Beatles is something everybody enjoys. Right. Anybody in any band, you go talk to your, you know, Corey and Slipknot it or whatever. It comes up every like, oh. episode of my podcast, every interview I do with a band, they, the Beatles right. come up. The Beatles, we all started from that. And, you know, when I was touring, I got to, I got a private tour of John Lennon's boyhood home. <gasps> you know? Like literally I was on tour in Liverpool with Jackson Brown and I'm in my hotel room and he texts me and he goes, no, take down this number. In the morning, I want you to call this guy, get the band together. He's going to give you a private tour of Lennon's home. And we go over there to Mendips and the guy just lets us walk around. I'm in Lennon's bedroom looking at his like old guitar on the wall and a poster of Bridget Bardot and stuff, you know, and it was like this reverence. And I've got I've been lucky. I, I worked with Paul McCartney a ton like we CSN opened Crosby, Stills and Nash opened for him in Hyde Park in London. Wow. And then we went to like a party afterwards and he lives in my neighborhood, in New York. Like I'll see him all the time and like. He's actually a normal guy. I think that's the weirdest thing about a lot of people say that. Yeah. Which is weird because he he doesn't have to be right. And he is. And I have a theory on it because he's almost so weird. I mean, not so it's almost so weird that he's so nice and normal. Like the first time I met him was the late 90s. We were doing a show at the Garden. His daughter, Stella McCartney, was getting an award. It was a VH1 like fashion rock. Yeah, she's she's an amazing designer. Absolutely. So so I had. uh, James Brown was my talent. And they were like, no, you got to get James Brown out to his trailer. And I start walking James across the stage and we're during the show. It's a live taping. Right. And James Brown stops and he's talking to somebody and I can't see who he's talking to. He's got the epaulets on like a stage costume. Yeah. And all of a sudden Dick Clark, who was a producer, comes over the voice of God and he's like, hey, we're back in one minute. Let's clear the stage back in one minute. And I'm like, James, we got to go, you know. And a stage manager pops around and goes, no, why don't you let him talk? Do you see who he's talking to? And I pop around and there's Paul McCartney. And he goes, hi, I'm Paul. And he just shakes my hand and I'm like, holy shit. And I go, Paul, I have to take James now. And he goes, fine, mate. You know, and I take James outside. And then the, the regular New York crowd came out of Penn Station and they go, hey, little Richard, it's little Richard. And James Brown is like, hi, how are you? And I walk past him. I'm like, James, doesn't that bother you? He goes, no, to them, I'm just another famous. And he says the N word. Oh, I was like, oh, my God. And he gave me a window. He's like, I've been getting that since 1960, you know, but um, and and James Brown has a great history in Boston, as we all know. But um, if uh, I were you, I would have gotten hi, I'm Paul tattooed on my skin. And in quotes, and uh, cited Paul McCartney underneath. And people be like, why do you have that? Because he said it to me. Right. (laughs) That's awesome. 
But, you know, my theory on why he's normal is because those guys and I worked with Graham Nash a lot, too, who grew up in Manchester, which is very similar to Liverpool. You know, these guys were working class guys yeah. after World War Two. And the UK wasn't rich after World War Two. No, America got the rich, Sabbath right? guys. All those guys grew up with nothing. Bingo, Birmingham, yeah. all that. Yeah. So they knew like they were like, I'd be working in a mine if I wasn't in a rock band. And it's sort of like they've never forgotten how lucky they are. Graham Nash. I mean, I worked with him for years. Every gig we'd walk into, he'd walk in the backstage area. There'd be a security guard or somebody. He'd walk up and say, hi, my name's Graham. Nice to meet you. Like he never lost that, you know, wonder and, and gentlemanliness. And the guy was in the Hollies. He would tell me stories. He'd be like, bro, I toured with the Beatles. Like I knew them when they were 16 and the Silver Beatles. He's like, Brian Jones used to ride in the car with me because he hated Mick and Keith when we would do car tours. You know, so if anybody could be arrogant, it's those guys from Britain and they're not. And on the opposite side of that, dudes in America became famous who had it pretty good, you know, who were suburban guys. Somebody right. like David Crosby grew up in Beverly Hills. His dad was a cinematographer, won, a, you know, Oscars. Those guys became somewhat like arrogant. You know what I mean? Yeah. They, they became like, I'm a rich rock star. Don't talk to me kind of bullshit. And, you know. The British guys, they never get too cocky about it, you know? Even Why don't you bring he, that up because my name's Carrie Ann and I was named after that song. Oh, you were? I yeah. love them. I love yeah. them. And I got to do the Hollies induction. That's how I always tell if somebody really knows their shit in music. If they mention the Hollies, I'm like, oh, you know the deal. Yeah. Yeah, I was. And unfortunately for me, every year on my birthday, my parents sang and played that song and blared it through the house every. Okay. So I grew up hating it. Because it was just forced on me. But yeah, the Hollies, I mean, if you're right, if you do know your shit, you know about the Hollies for sure. Absolutely. And, and you know, when they were getting inducted, I, this back in that day, we used to do it at the Waldorf in New York. And I remember standing in the hallway with Graham and with the other, his partner in the Hollies, his name is escaping me right now. But um, Barry Gibb walked up to us. And he goes, congratulations, gentlemen. I think Bus Stop is the perfect pop song. And I was just like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, my jaw dropped, you know, because how many great songs has the Bee Gees written? Let's Almost face it. the ones that McCartney didn't write, he wrote. Exactly. Exactly. And I was just like, oh, my God, that was so cool. But, yeah, the Hollies, man. Well, I, I literally could probably spend a week talking to you about music because music people we're weird like we want to sit around and talk about music stuff like my husband is not that way I like I don't date bands but I married a marine for the same thing the ball busting backstage embrace the suck kind of thing he doesn't quite understand because he's not this passionate music fan passionate music fans like you and I it's a whole other level yeah and it's like this life force in us that like, if you took it away, like I would be an empty shell of, of whatever would be left. I agree. Cause it's a spirit, you know, it's a spirit. And uh, we share like the sort of like the passion for that in a way that my same, my, I've been with my girlfriend for like 30 years, you know, and we'll turn on the radio and I'll be like, who is that? Who's playing drums on that track? And she's like, I don't freaking know, <laughs> you know? And I'll be like, I told you five years ago, you know, that's Todd Rundgren. He's also playing drums. Like just the more esoteric, the better, you know? 
I I tell this story all the time, and I feel bad because I'm diming him out, but I, I took him backstage to Metallica, and I had to interview James Hetfield. And that interview made it to the intro reel of the Aerosmith Deuces Are Wild Vegas show where they showed the 50-year career. And James Hetfield was talking about growing up with pictures of Aerosmith on the wall. And so for like four seconds, I'm in the Aerosmith, like his like video thing. I was like, so my then boyfriend, now husband, was in the room. We did the interview, whatever, and introduced him to James Hetfield. And it was like a quick thing or whatever. And he left and he was like, okay, now who is that again? Oh my God. And I was like, so then we go out because Mixmaster Mike was playing music in between the, the, the set changes and stuff. And I was like, oh my God, that's Mixmaster Mike. And I went up to him and I introduced myself. Can I take a picture? Oh my God. And my boyfriend was like, who? I was like, that's Mixmaster Mike from the Beastie Boys. He's like, you have no. Oh my God. He just, he's not that. It it doesn't dry and he's a country music fan, which I married him in spite of that. But like, um, but it's just weird that like there are people that just if the radio's on, they're just passive music fans. And then there's people that are gonna come and see you at the city winery that wanna hear hours and hours and hours of these amazing stories that you've been fortunate enough to be a part of. And it's like we're in this weird cult together. Absolutely. You know, and if there's any cult members listening, come on out next Thursday, December 23rd, 6 p.m. City Winery. It's, you know, and if you got somebody you want to hear about, yell out a name. And I got odds are I have a story. I know. From, you know, I was from, like, how am I going to like a- ask him about all the things I want to ask him about? Because there's not enough time in the day. Like yeah. you got to start right. I hope you've been writing this stuff down because obviously at the time when your career started, you didn't have a smartphone to be able to snap selfies and jot it all down. So they're like the same thing with me, like my roadie career in the mid nineties. I don't have the picture with BB King. I don't have the picture with Tito Puente. I don't have the picture with, you know, George Clinton. And like, I don't have them because I didn't have a camera. Exactly. I didn't take a picture until 2009, you know, until those phones came out. And I, you know, I'd already been in the business 19 years or something. But uh, yeah, I am writing it down because you have to keep a record because somebody's going to be interested. You know, I interviewed Lee Sklar on my podcast yesterday, the great bass player for James Taylor and Carol King, you know, you name it. You know, Lee Sklar's played on everything you hear on the radio practically. And he does these YouTube things where he'll just pick a track. Like, here's me playing with Bette Midler or something. And he'll talk about what that session was like and who was in the room. And some kids are going to study it. Kids at Berkeley in Boston, you know, the best music school in the world. They're going to want this insight. And people like yourself keeping it alive, man, all hats, you know, my hats tip to you. Because I, I, I used to tell people like, and it's funny that you used to drive because I would always eat lunch with the drivers. Cause they, I'm like, those guys have the story. And when I came up, it was a generation of like the greatest generation of rock guys. Oh, yeah. Cause most people don't realize this modern touring was invented in like 1974. You know, that was the first big with a PA stadium tour. It was yes. CSN and grateful dead. And all these guys would trade equipment. And how do we do this? The Beatles no- couldn't tour cause the technology couldn't make a PA loud enough to get louder than the screaming girls. Like that concept is like, what? Exactly. And now you can get a PA hanging two arrays that are tiny, that could like rock Foxborough stadium until the seats come off. Yeah. <laughs> like, and it fits you know? in the trunk of a Toyota. 
Exactly. And a guy's controlling it with an iPad, you know, right. I know, and like crazy. back in the day, it was insane. And I want to hear that stuff. Cause that's, you know, we have to build upon that when those guys leave us and we know a lot of them are leaving, you yeah, know, like it's every day, a musician who was just instrumental is leaving. The next five so, years are going to be really painful for music fans because there are iconic musicians that we, you know, I mean, look at a guy like, like Dusty Hill, you know, a, a guy like Neil Peart, a guy like Eddie Van Halen. You think these guys are just always going to be there. No. And then I you know. wake up one day and you're like, wait, what, what do you mean I live in a world that Eddie Van Halen doesn't live in anymore? I don't, I don't understand that. You're about to make me cry. Because when he died, I went out on my back porch. I, I watched a video of eruption and I cried. You know, yeah. when Neil Peart died, I cried. Like I had cried just like somebody called you up and was like, Hey, your uncle just died. And, you know, I was like shocked and sad because they're part of our childhood, you know, and they're part of our life experience. Right. Yeah. We love that music. Cause you're thinking about that playing when you met your first boyfriend, when you yes. had a beer at the lake in the summertime. And when you played air drums in the back, you know, of your dad's station wagon with your buddies and stuff, you know, this music helps us get through life. And now more than ever, we need that, right? We're in the toughest times that many of us have faced, but we need hope. We need joy, laughter. That's what this season is about, right? It's about, you know, let's love, let's, let's, let's get this thing back on track and let's rock out. I tell people all the time, one of the most vivid childhood memories I have was my mom and her best friend had taken me shopping in a department store because my dad was home watching the football game and we were in the department store and they came over the loudspeaker to announce that John Lennon had died. And my mom and her best friend started crying in the middle of the department store. And I didn't understand because I was eight that my mom and her best friend were crying about someone they didn't even know. I just, I didn't understand. And I think back on that now and I'm like, not only do I get it, you know, but it also, I mean, it's such a vivid memory that I have of my childhood and, and it, you know, and I get my love of music from, I mean, I get it from my parents, you know, it's like, I remember my mom crying about John Lennon passing away. And, and now you and I are having these experiences where we're losing the musicians that we grew up loving that are the soundtrack to our lives. Yeah. No, well said. And that me too. I mean, I was 10 years old and my mom woke me up in the morning in tears and my parents were hippies. So Lennon was like God, you know, it was like Jesus has died again. You know, it was really traumatic. And uh, it was a lot. I remember when Elvis died too. I remember getting the, the newspaper and seeing that, but yeah, we're losing these guys. And, you know, Luckily, the music lives on. You know, that's yeah. the good part is that there'll be people getting their minds blown by Prince in 50 years. You yeah. know? But but it also should tell you, like, go see him while you can. That's the you know, I never saw Rush and I don't know how many times I had the opportunity and I was busy or I can't do it. I'll see him down the road. Childhood favorite. But, you know, and now I never will. And it's one of my major regrets, you yeah. know. Go and see the bands you love. Go and see the people that make you laugh and feel good. Um, the next time you come to town, um, can we do this again? Because I love talking music with you. Everybody that knows you that knows me knew, told me that that I was going to get along with you like crazy. And I just want to talk to you for hours. 
Well, right on, Princess Carrie. I would love to come back. <laughs> I had a blast talking with you. I love your hair. Thank I you. I love your whole vibe. Nobody yeah. would recognize me without it now. Like, it's the logo now. Like, I, even my own mom would be like, who the fuck are you if I didn't have purple hair anymore? So. Oh, it's badass, thank dude. Thank you. You know, so I hope you and your husband, thank you for his service. It thank sounds you. like, you know. You guys are the kind of people we need more of in this world. So keep rocking out. Well, I don't get to see him this holiday because he's away. So he's been gone for almost 16 months. So no Christmas last year, no Christmas this year. Next year, we're doing it right. All right. Well, well, next year, have a great Christmas and thanks for his service. I mean, people forget what these sacrifices are that people are making, you know, and and that's, you know, more reason. Like if you can be nice to somebody, be nice to them. Hold the door. They might not be seeing their loved one on Christmas morning. (laughs) You know, they might have lost somebody's coffee or something. Do something a little nice. Put a little love back into the world. There you go. Pay it forward. Well, I look forward to coming back and come on out, you guys, next week. City Winery. It was so nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. We'll talk soon. Got it. Thanks. See Bye. ya. There he is, the one and only Noel Kastler. You can see him on the 23rd at the Boston City Winery. And if you check the show notes of this podcast, there's a link for you to get more information on the show and to get tickets. You'll also find all of Noel's links as well to his website, all his social media and details on his podcast. And you'll also find mine as well. And just like every other episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast, there's also a link for a corresponding playlist. Noel and I talked about a lot of kick-ass music, and it is all in a playlist to make it easy for you to go and listen to all the songs we were talking about and check out all the bands we were talking about. Thanks to our sponsor, Digital Federal Credit Union. You can find them online at dcu.org. If you like what you heard, don't forget to hit subscribe and follow so you don't miss anything from the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday. Every weekday, you get the sit rep. The Situation Report is all your rock news, music headlines, and industry info boiled down to five minutes or less. And then you never know when you're going to get a bonus episode. And you can join me every Tuesday night live on my Facebook page for Cocktails in the War Room. The Mistress Carrie podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.